In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Manjushri. Please accomplish this. Good evening, welcome. It's a smoky Wednesday, Tuesday night here in the tri state area, as well as many other areas on this planet we call Earth. A couple of us are going to Profound Treasury. Who's going to Profound Treasury this week? Katie? Arise! And uh, Christopher Dillon? Arise! What day are you guys leaving? Uh, Friday? I'm leaving tomorrow. Arise! Cool. I'm going to you know, do some hiking in the mountains in New Hampshire. On the way. That's that what I'm was... doing right now. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm spooling up my fishing reel. <laughs> wow, a Buddhist who fishes. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> yeah, like Tilopa. Oh. I'm going up on Wednesday. Because right. I'm gonna see my college best friend who's had who had a baby 10 months ago who I haven't met yet. So I'm pretty excited. All right. Yeah. That's great to do stuff on the way there and back. Nice. Well, have a great time, guys. Judy's last East Coast Hurrah. PTR. Hurrah. Yeah, indeed. That's great. And who else has been there? Mary Beth has been to it in the past. Barbara has been to it in the past. I think Derek has been to it a couple of times. And uh, cool. So maybe next year, Eric, Cynthia, and Morgan will go. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> anyway, if it's, to, if it's in Maine, you'll have to do it. <laughs> Maine, well, Maine, I've, Maine. I've been to retreats in Maine. I just haven't been to that particular one. The one I did was with Tronga Rinpoche, and we camped out uh, in, I don't know if it's the same area. I think it's close. Uh, and uh, they had one of those very kind of traditional uh, tents, the Tibetan style tents. And then uh, we all camped out in the field somewhere. And uh, so a little yes. bit different style, but. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. Big bear, right? Uh, yeah, this was before they, I mean, this was actually one of the early years before they sort of officialized it into a, a particular place. Um, they eventually had some kind of more of an indoor place, I think, that they used. Yeah. yeah, Profound Treasury, we used the place that they ended up, the indoor place, we used that for the first year of Profound Treasury. Right. So this was more, I don't know, maybe a, in a little bit different. It was near the water so you could swim and uh, mm. I don't this, remember. Yeah, this, this one is now. It's right on the water. It's great. Anyway, so tonight we have a, a bunch of material to get through on meditation. After all that other stuff, it just seems so much more fun and easy. 
in quick reading. I apologize, I did make a mistake in my uh, higher math calculation of the pages. If anybody was looking, it was a lot more pages, 10 more pages than I had uh, calculated. But So we'll get, we'll go through what we can. We'll skim around. So first we start on uh, physical page 353 which is part six, Training the Mind Through Meditation, and it's the introduction by Professor Dunn. Not D-O-N, but D-U-N-N-E. It's not Dunn season. <laughs> the purpose of analysis throughout this volume, a consistent but often subtle theme is under the underlying purpose for all this endless mumbo-jumbo and, and complicated, convoluted language, analysis of the mind, cognition, concept, and reasoning, the final part, the, that purpose comes to the fore front, namely that all that has been presented thus far is concerned with transforming the mind with changes in behavior that induces key element is meditation and keeping with our author's intention much of my of this introduction will present key aspects to begin follow our authors and surveying the buddhist theories of psychological behavioral change since the buddhist understanding of that process is precisely what helps us to appreciate the transformative role played by meditative practice in other words, helps us understand how meditation works, and that helps meditation work. Counteracting kleshas. Uh, the Buddhist approach to eliminating suffering focuses on how we work with our mental afflictions, including ignorance, craving, and aversion, to reduce and eventually eliminate them. Through, an, through their analysis of that process, Buddhist theorists have arrived at an intriguing insight. It's possible to counteract mental afflictions in ways that temporarily prevent their occurrence, but to uproot them completely, one must address the underlying cognitive mechanism that makes them possible. Gotta cut them at the root just like weeds. We can characterize these two approaches by introducing two terms implied by our author's analysis, namely suppressing and undermining. These two approaches rest on two different ways that a mental state can be incompatible with another. When one mental state, such as aversion, is suppressing another, such as craving, this is due to the incompatibility of the two states, which was... Uh, familiar with, uh, sorry, similar to the idea of uh, reasons by, um, uh, based upon effect, where um, we had some reasons where the, um, where the reason was the opposite of the, uh, uh, opposites of each other such as light and dark and then there are other reasons where one of them um, creates an incompatible situation such as fire and cold right so similar to that and we'll see how that rolls out or 
unfolds through this chapter. Uh, let's see. A version, for example, is focused on an object that's construed in some fashion as negative or unattractive, while craving is construed as a po uh, positive or attractive. It's focused on an object, sorry, that's construed as positive or attractive. So these two afflictions cannot exist simultaneously in a mental state focused on a single object because they require incompatible construals. <laughs> That's a, that's a funny word, plural of construe, construals of that object is either attractive or unattractive. In contrast, when a mental state such as wisdom undermines an affliction such as craving has eliminated the cognitive mechanisms that are required for craving to arise. Thus, when an affliction is suppressed, it is prevented from arising temporarily because another incompatible mental state is present. But when a mental state is undermined, the very condition for its occurrence have been eliminated. And if that undermining is completely effective in a lasting way, then any mental afflictions that depend on those mechanisms can never occur again. So any related mental afflictions that was uh, like the secondary mental negative mental factors that depend on the root mental negative mental factors or clashes. But as contemplative practice tends to be eminently practical, and since the process process of completely uprooting the mechanisms that underlie the mental afflictions is a long-term and arduous task, it's tremendously useful to have some techniques to suppress particular mental afflictions, even if the, the techniques are, are essentially a band-aid that cannot undermine the problem altogether. So it's helpful to reduce craving and aversion during meditation so that uh, in a temporary way so that you can focus on understanding developing the understanding that's necessary to completely undermine or, or uproot them um, in this regard one set of well-known practices focuses on compassion and loving kindness while one is in a mental state with compassion or loving kindness it's not possible for any of the afflictions connected to aversion such as anger hatred and resentment to arise thus for practitioners who have mind or have mindfully observed the predominance of afflict of averse sorry aversive afflictions in their mental life meditations that cultivate loving kindness and compassion can be an effective if all be a temporary balm that reduces that aversion. Techniques to suppress negative mental states are noteworthy and if cultivated effectively, Buddhist traditions acknowledge they can help one to manage one's behavior. But is it affect, affect management? Right? That's the big thing when you work in corporate or in companies, particularly nonprofits, that's uh, provide services to children. The, the affect of the employees at least that's what i experienced when i was working there and i don't know mary beth if you get that stuff yeah uh, let's see however the task of completely undermining mental afflictions such as aversion such that they simply cannot ever arise again requires a different approach to understand that it's helpful to understand the role of a distorted form of attention as a product of ignorance and how it engenders mental afflictions. 
One of the most important insights offered by our author's account of mental and behavioral transformation notion that afflictions act, uh, sorry, cognitively distort their objects, color the, our perception and therefore our experience of rea uh, reality, so-called. The technical term for this type of distortion is inappropriate attention in Sanskrit something or other. <laughs> That's a tongue twister in Sanskrit. Ayoni Shomanasikara. Wow. Which occurs within the overall context of our conditioned experience. Uh, let's see. Anyway, this is pretty obvious. He, uh, this idea that prior conditioning will condition your experience of your world around you based upon that prior conditioning such as experiencing a bowl of strawberries with hopes fears worries expectations and so forth and we project all of that onto reality every moment all the time so let's skip through this <clears throat> And so at the end of, uh, let's see, the, at the end of his section before the practice of wisdom, the second to last paragraph before that says, um, this very tendency to distort reality, the tendency to filter all experiences through the exaggerations of craving and aversion is precisely what Buddhists mean by the inappropriate attention that arises from ignorance. Fortunately, ignorance, the mental afflictions are not essential qualities of the mind. They are temporary distortions, temporary defilements. And as a result, ignorance, along with the inappropriate attention of various types that it causes, can be completely eliminated. And since the cognitive distortions of ignorance lie at the root of all the other mental afflictions, one can eradicate all of the mental afflictions by eliminating that one. How does one do so? Through contemplative practices, including meditation that cultivate wisdom. What is wisdom? As noted in the essay introducing the, the, the book in part one, wisdom eradicates ignorance by seeing the way things truly are. In other words, it undermines the cognitive distortions that constitute ignorance. This immediately raises two issues. What exactly is the way things truly are? And second, what kind of seeing is involved here? The first question is of course complex and you have to read the next volume of this series to uh, grapple with that which we'll do in the fall i think we'll use their volume for the tenant course tenants course and um instead it is the second question about the notion of seeing that's most relevant here. How do we see properly? That's what meditation is about. In short, the metaphor of seeing points to a crucial aspect of wisdom's transformative power. For it to be effective, wisdom cannot be simply a matter of intellectual understanding. Top of 357. It must instead become experiential. This distinction between intellectual understanding and an experiential 
understanding largely comes down to the difference between conceptual and perceptual cognition. As we have learned for many, many years, our authors have already discussed this difference in detail without reiterating that. We can simply note that perceptual experience has clarity or phenomenal intensity or, or is intensely, phenomenally intense <laughs> that involves a visceral level of uh, response such that thinking of eating an apple and actually doing so are manifestly distinct manifestly drastically we've also learned that conceptual cognitions always involve some degree of distortion for example the thought of an apple imputes a false sameness to all apples whereas perception is free of such distortions thus from an epistemological perspective wisdom must become a perceptual experience understanding if it is to be a truly undistorted encounter with reality, a transformative one. This epistemological issue is important, but in the context of understanding a contemplative process of cultivating wisdom, perhaps a more crucial issue is the role that perceptual experience plays in psychological and behavioral change. In short, Buddhist theorists maintain that without the visceral impact of an actual experience, merely thinking about some, some transformative content will be much less effective creating these changes the visceral impact of actual experience so our authors discuss the process of cultivating wisdom through two interrelated schemes the three stages of wisdom and the notion of view meditation and conduct the three stages of wisdom outline a contemplative process that begins with learning some conceptual content, for example, the Buddhist analysis of personal identity or self. This act of learning is called listening, since traditionally written texts are transmitted through oral discourse and commentary. It also points to the contemplative aspects of this process in as much as the guidance for proper listening includes instructions about motivation, attention, effective orientation, and so on. Once one has a clear understanding of the material learned from the text and teacher, the wisdom arisen from learning is in place. One then applies rational analysis to that material, primarily employing the type of inferential reasoning discussed in part five. At this stage, one is critically reflecting on the meaning of the material one has learned, and once one reaches a point of clarity and certainty about that meaning, one has achieved the wisdom arisen from critical reflection. Finally, in order to bring one's critical understanding to the point of a visceral, non-conceptual experience when engaged in meditative practices that eventually end in such an experience which is itself the wisdom arisen from meditation. The contemplative process outlined by the three stages of wisdom fits into a larger context of contemplative practice, and the notion of view meditation conduct points to some key features of that larger context. The view concerns especially the intellectual understanding and experiential, experiential knowledge that constitutes the wisdom that uproots ignorance. But the view can also be understood to include other theoretical and experiential knowledge concerning other topics, such as compassion, that are crucial to the past. The term conduct refers to the contemplative lifestyle required for effective practice, and one of its main features is the importance of ethical behavior. 
In short, an unethical life is one filled with mental afflictions. And since those are necessarily, since those necessarily cause mental disturbance, they induce chaotic mind states that are not suitable to contemplative practice. Finally, meditative meditation refers not only to practices for cultivating wisdom arisen from meditation, but also to the wide variety of practices that Buddhists use to advance on their path. So what is meant by meditation is to be discussed at length. The main technical term for meditation in Buddhist Sanskrit sources is uh, bhavana. It comes from the verbal root buh, to be or to become in its causal form and it literally means causing to become or making be the tr tibetan translation is gom and it emphasizes a particular interpretation of bhavana where meditation involves a process of familiarization as a general translation cultivation may be best to it capturing the range of meanings suggested by bhavana in that meditation involves cultivating particular mental states such as compassion or cultivating knowledge of or familiarity with a particular object or topic such as impermanence or other such things. Okay, uh, let's see. A key scheme discussed at length by our authors is the distinction between shamatha and vipassana, calm abiding and special insight. These two are said to lie at the core of all Buddhist meditative practices, in part because the process that culminates in the emergence of meditative wisdom requires integration of both. Calm abiding most literally refers to a particular achievement such that one can sustain a com completely stable meditative state with a type of mental and physical pliancy or fluency that enables one to effortlessly remain undistracted while sustaining great mental clarity. Special insight refers to a state in which wisdom is fully present, especially the wisdom that uproots ignorance and usage, both calm abiding special insight, commonly refer to meditative practices that are meant to culminate in these achievements. Thus one can say that one is practicing calm abiding in the sense that one is engaged in a practice that meant to culminate in the actual calm abiding. Many sources maintain the calm abiding is usually cultivated first, special insight later, but in all cases, the two must eventually be combined. And he cites the traditional uh, metaphor. Skipping that, the rubric of calm abiding, special insight relate to another pair of terms, placement meditation and analytical meditation. Placement meditation is joke gom, and analytical is jgom, which uh, we're in Trungpa Rinpoche's earliest seminary teachings. He used, he refers to those, and it's in the profound treasury. When engaging in the practice of placement meditation, jokom, one is not employing discursive content or analysis. <clears throat> in contrast, when engaging in analytical meditation, discursive content or analysis is an explicit form of practice. As our authors note, calm abiding will generally fall under the rubric of placement meditation. Special insight is cultivated through an analytical process, so it will generally be characterized as analytical. However, the integration of the two is a special case where the intense focus of the analysis special insight itself engenders the fluency 
and unstrengthened stability of calm abiding. The relationship between the Shamatha Vipassana points to a more general feature of many other meditative practices, such as cultivation of compassion. Specifically, an analytical meditation where, for example, one follows a script of discursive contemplations that are intended to induce compassion is often followed in the same session by placement meditation such that one lets go of the discursive content and remains non-discursively in the state induced by the analytical meditation. And when that state degrades or dissipates, one again returns to the analytical meditation. This way, a practitioner might alternate between analytical meditation and placement meditation. This approach characterizes much of what is described as meditation in the traditional manuals. Compassion meditation is classified by a general cultural as shamatha meditation. So in this case, it's a shamatha practice that has both um, analytical and placement. Is that what they're saying? Calling it placement meditation, right? So we have these four uh, groups of phenomena. We have shamatha meditations, we have Vipassana meditations, we have uh, placement meditations, and we have analytical meditations. What's the relationship between uh, placement meditations and analytical meditation? Uh, no overlap? No overlap, exclusive, right? Exclusionary. They do not have a, a common locus. What's the relationship between shamatha and vipassana? Much trickier than that. <laughs> uh, so uh, until they're combined, it's the same. It's also exclusionary. But there is a way of combining them because they're not. Wow, if they can be combined, they're not mutually exclusive, yeah. No, I mean, based on what even what they just said in that paragraph, you can't say that they're the same, I mean, that they're exclusive, just not. So, so then, there, yeah, so that, thanks. So then there's the question of what's the relationship between placement meditation and shamatha meditation? That's what I thought you were going to ask first. <laughs> I thought I'd start with the easy one. Overlapping? Overlapping, yeah. So um, that means that there's some types of shamatha that are not placement meditations. And uh, we just saw an example of one of those. The compassion meditation is a shamatha meditation, but it was not a, it has a, a discursive or analytical feature to it. And that means that if they're overlapping, there's some part of placement meditation which is not shamatha. So that implies that there's a phase in Vipassana practice that is place is um, placement meditation. Is that the word they're using, placement? Yeah, placement. Right, but I'm sorry, I'm going back to try to reread. I, I thought that when they were describing that thing of the compassion meditation, that they were talking about sort of two steps, where the first step was an analytic one, and then they went to placement, right? So were you saying that that was all considered shamatha? Because well, I didn't think of it that way. That's what John Kongchul classifies it as in his 
chapter oh. on shamatha and treasury of knowledge and then and in that chapter he quotes many other sources that uh, um, are, are pretty clearly defining vipassana as insight into the nature of the mind or into the nature of this the shamatha aspect of mind and so the, uh, this uh, let's see analytical analytical compassion practice would not be considered vipassana from that point of view really and would be considered a type of shamatha that involves uh, uh, analysis and we've seen this in, in a number of other places where there's shamatha practices that have both uh, analytical and placement phases so the like the contemplation of the nine nine stages of decomposition of a, a human body from a corpse into a skeleton is an analytical shamatha contemplation and uh, a number of other examples and uh, and then uh, those of those of us in the tradition of Trungpa Rinpoche are quite familiar with his style of of vipassana practice without analysis so that would be an example of uh, vipassana that is a placement meditation and he's famous for saying that he's following the tradition of placement meditation at the beginning of his presentation of, of vipassana and then he also presents even though he doesn't quite uh, categorize it that way then he also presents uh, a number of different versions of discursive or analytical vipassana when he goes through <laughs> what he calls the six discoveries and he goes through the four uh, what he calls the four levels i think of, of vipassana and in, in other places without calling it vipassana he talks about understanding the nature of the ego and as it uh, as the progression of the development of the skandhas and as the, um, the that which migrates through the six realms and that which experiences the, the portable stage set and so on all of which are uh, sort of analytical contemplative contemplative aspects of vipassana practice so um overlapping I, i'll go with that that they're overlapping as is the relationship between vipassana and um, analytical practice and therefore vipassana and uh, placement are overlapping and shamatha and ana analytical meditations are also overlapping mindfulness meta-awareness and regulating attention although we speak of meditation with a single term bhavana the large variety of practices encompassed by that term can differ so significantly that one may wonder whether they share any universal features in this regard our authors helpfully turn to the central role played by mindfulness and meta-awareness <laughs> That term just makes me chuckle. Anyway, in any meditative practice, especially as a means to regulate attention, to appreciate their presentation, however, it's important to unpack both of these terms. 
So we uh, put their suitcases on the bed and we unzip them. And these days, the term mindfulness is widespread like wildfire and secularized mindfulness programs now show up in numerous contexts, schools, workplaces uh, that often that are often or usually outside of Buddhist cultural milieu. Both within Buddhism and more broadly in the contemporary world, mindfulness can describe a range of practices that vary considerably in technique and goals. And the more general it's usage found both in some Buddhist texts and in contemporary contexts, the Sanskrit term smriti, usually translated as mindfulness, connects to meanings that range from its literal sense of remembering to meanings such as moment-by-moment non-judgmental awareness. Now, who's famous for that definition for 10 points? Is that the Olenzeki? I mean, I can't pronounce his name from Insight. Uh, it's, I think it's, nope. I think it's John Kabat-Zinn, I think was the oh, okay. person Fine. who coined that definition. Okay. But, the um, other guy's is more complicated then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great article that he has there, that you're referring to the author of. Our authors, um, however, are using this term in a much more restricted technical sense, drawing on the account of mental factors in part two that we went through. Mindfulness here refers specifically to a mental factor that supports stable attention. More specifically in this technical context, mindfulness is the mental factor that prevents distraction. In other words, it prevents the mind from losing track of an object or dropping out of a target state. The loss, this loss of focus often occurs due to intentional capture capture the flag, where an unintended object or stimulus catches one's attention and one involuntarily loses track of one's intended object. So if you're watching the screen, you might be experiencing one of those right now. <laughs> Sometimes, however, one simply loses focus on the object without being drawn to a new object as when one dozes off in the middle of a meditative session. Ooh, that's a rare occurrence, huh? The role of the mental factor mindfulness is to prevent the loss of one's meditative focus in any of these ways. In this usage, one can think of the original term smriti and its Tibetan translation, drenpa, which literally mean memory as a kind of metaphor. When one loses track of an object, it's as if one is forgetting it. Thus, the mental factor that prevents one from forgetting or losing the object can be metaphorically called remembering. Unfortunately, the usual English translation of this term as mindfulness does not convey this nuance. The second term cited by our authors is samprajanya in Sanskrit. We've translated this as meta-awareness. Readers familiar with this term in its poly context where it's rendered, rendered as samprajanya may be surprised by this translation since in those contexts it's usually rendered as clear comprehension where one of its main functions is to recognize key features of the meditative object. That was one of the more interesting statements saying that in the Pali tradition, this mental factor, Samprajanya, has that function. 
recognizing key features of the meditative object. However, in the Sanskrit sources cited by our authors, and especially in those as those sources and those sauces also are interpreted in Tibet, Sampajani plays a different role. Specifically, this term refers to the aspect of a meditative awareness that monitors the quality of one's attention along with other mental and physical aspects of an ongoing meditative experience. It's interesting that he says it, it never, like it, it, in, in the Tibetan or Indo-Tibetan tradition, it does not do that same function of recognizing key features of a meditative object. Uh, let's see. For example, when we're stabilizing one's attention on the breath, Samprajani is what enables one to notice that one has become distracted, such that instead of attending to the sensation of breathing, one is now thinking about a beach vacation. <laughs> in other words, Samprajani is what enables one to notice that mindfulness in the technical sense described above has been lost. For this reason, Samprajani is clearly a form of what cognitive scientists call meta-awareness. What is the significance of the term meta in this, in his translation? Anybody? Meta-awareness? What is meta? Meta is a Greek word that means change. Metamorphosis. Or does morphosis mean change? And meta means any Greek scholars here? No? no. I don't know for sure, but sometimes I thought meta was just kind of like getting a bigger perspective. That's how it's used now. It's sort of like something that's around the main object. But yeah. I don't know the you know original language aspect. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Like in the usage of it as a metadata. Yeah. Or um, yeah. Yeah. I think its original meaning was about. Yeah, about a roundabout sort of, not a road, but in other words, let's see. Well, it's awareness about awareness. Awareness about awareness. That's good. Uh, the technical terms. It says uh, in the, well, one definition is a more comprehensive or transcending. And that's for meta-awareness or just for meta? Just for meta, from the Greek meta, meaning, meaning after or beyond, I guess, is the part that's more close to the Greek. But it's, they then say it's sort of more comprehensive or transcending, which is what we were talking about, modern usage. Okay. That's what I was thinking. You were fishing for that? that transcendent awareness. Uh, so it's a different kind of awareness. You uh, transcend see. yourself. Huh. You were fishing for that one. Okay, good. I was. <laughs> the technical terms mindfulness and meta-awareness point to a process that is essential to meditative meditation practice, namely the regulation of attention. It's funny, when we talk about the factors of mindful of meditation shamatha and we go through uh, mindfulness samadhi drenpa and uh, meta awareness or samprajanya or sheshan we don't list attention <laughs> but it's like both of them are in support of attention which is sort of the main mental factor but our authors explore this topic in their lengthy, lengthy account of Claim about clam abiding, 
But the issues raised here apply more broadly to other practices, all other practices. In brief, the regulation of attention is conceptualized, especially in terms of the two main ways that a meditative state degrades. How does a meditative state degrade? Mind goes up or down. Excitation and laxity. These two features stand along a spectrum of what psychological science refers to as arousal. <laughs> such that it's the strongest form of excitation amounts to a form of high arousal and, and the deepest form of laxity is a form of low arousal. High arousal states of excitation involve mental scattering and instability whereby the mind is constantly losing track of its focal object or target state and is instead attending to irrelevant objects, sensory stimuli, memories, and so on that attract the mind. In low arousal states involving laxity, the mind loses the clarity or intensity required to sustain focus on an object or task, and the meditation degrades as a result. In this model of attention regulation within meditation, meta-awareness what detects excitation and laxity. It has a detector, and advanced practitioners can notice their presence before the meditation actually degrades. In other words, as the capacity for meta-awareness improves, practitioners can detect subtle degrees of excitation and laxity, and they can do so even while maintaining their focus on a meditative object. Two things at once. In most contexts, excitation and laxity are closely tied to the clarity and stability of the meditative state. The two main, two of the three main factors of shamatha, the third is strength. And a general goal of practice is thus to strike the right balance between these two features. Too much clarity or intensity tends to produce excitation and the mental scattering that follows. Too much stability can lead to laxity and increasingly dull mental state that eventually can even transition into sleep. Especially for beginners, many practices involve learning how to cultivate the kind of meta-awareness that enables them to notice the imbalance of stability and clarity, along with the potential for excitation and laxity in a way that does not completely interrupt the meditative state. So it's like a tiny, subtle little commentator that's going on that uh, notices whether we're sinking or rising, arousing. Some styles of practice even attempt to cultivate a form of meta-awareness that persists without any explicit focus on any object. In these practices, the goal is to sustain mindfulness of mere non-distraction, such that one drops focus on any object and with meta-awareness still present, one remains in a state free of any attentional capture whatsoever. This style of practice known as objectless, calm abiding, is radically different from those that seek to cultivate object-oriented focus, yet the basic features of mindfulness, meta-awareness, and attentional regulation are in many ways the same. Anyone have an idea what, what practice he's talking about? Formless meditation. Yeah, formless meditation, otherwise known more formally, so to speak, as 
in, well, in, the, in terms of shamatha without object. Thank you very much. Shamatha without object, right? There's shamatha with object, you know, in the Mahamudra scheme of uh, classifying shamatha as uh, with object and without object, and then there's different types of object, concrete objects such as concrete and non-concrete objects such as. Well, jello, be careful, jello. that would be anything other than concrete. Jello, <laughs> that's right, anything other than concrete. <laughs> uh, let's see, examples of meditative practices. Our authors conclude this part with a presentation of two different examples of meditative practice, contemplative practices. The application of mindfulness, mriti upasthana, in Sanskrit, and the cultivation of equanimity, uh, which is satipatana in Pali, by the way. Right, the application of mindfulness in Pali, sati is smriti, and patana is upasthana. Patana is Pali, and upasthana is Sanskrit. And the cultivation of equanimity toward the eight worldly concerns. And uh, the latter practice is an excellent example in the mind training style that's highly discursive and thus relies primarily on analytical meditation. That's neat. As with other parts of this volume, we here we begin, sorry, here again the work of Shanti Davis, especially influential with its emphasis on pithy arguments and aphorisms that point out the absurdity or pointlessness of our usual attitudes toward mundane issues, such as praise and blame, fame and infamy, and so on. In many ways, our author's account of this practice actually reproduces the practice itself. And as one reads the text, it may be useful to see how the arguments and aphorisms affect one's frame of mind. The key point here is to recognize that the target of such a practice is our ordinary unreflective way of going through the day under the delusion of attempting to protect or satisfy a sense of self that is in fact not existent. Likewise, even in such a highly discursive practice that can almost be realized just by reading the text, one may also be able to see how mindfulness and meta-awareness along with the regulation of attention along with the regulation, I thought those were the regulation, must be in place for one to attend to the contemplations with enough focus for them to transform one's experience, allowing the contemplation on the eight worldly concerns <clears throat> to have an impact enables one to see how this is a genuine meditative practice, even if it does not conform to the stereotype of meditation as sitting quietly in deep inward serenity. The other practices presented by our authors, the applications of mindfulness is sometimes translated as the foundations of mindfulness, which might be a more familiar term to, to some readers. The practices as described, however, is uh, the, the practice rather, is quite different from contemporary notions of mindfulness. And this points both to the complexity of the term mindfulness and to the general diversity of meditative practices. Our authors describe the applications of mindfulness in terms of eliminating four false conceptions, that the body is pure, that sensations are truly pleasant, that experience is stable, and that there is, in relation to our mind-body components, some form of 
absolute self. This way of interpreting mindfulness practice draws on classical accounts in the Abhidharma literature. In contrast, many contemporary accounts emphasize the notion of attending purposefully to the present moment without judgment or reactivity. Again, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, MBSR mindfulness-based stress reduction and insight movement. Uh, this too is an authentic practice, but in relation to the account presented by our authors, it is much closer to a calm abiding or shamatha practice, especially according to the styles found in the non-dual Tibetan traditions such as Mahamudra and Dzogchen. <laughs> Interesting that he affiliates that term with those traditions. Um, the implication, which he doesn't say, but the implication is that the uh, four foundations of mindfulness, as, as he presented them, are a Vipassana practice. And clearly the fourth one, focused on uh, the absence of self, would be definitely a Vipassana practice. All this is to say that, it, as this part of the volume amply indicates, when we use terms, the terms mindfulness, meditation, in the singular, we may very easily miss the tremendous diversity that characterizes these Buddhist contemplative practices. Hey, listen, interesting uh, further readings, some of which we've looked at. Anulayo's book on Satipatthana, The Direct Path of Realization, we've used before in a course on the Four Foundations. Really great book. And that's the only one I think that we've used. Okay, section, chapter 23, how the mind is trained, causes and conditions that produce mental afflictions. Thus far, we've completed our presentation of the mind, the organizing, sorry, the cognizing subject, how the mind engages its object, the reasoning that may be used by the mind to determine its object, and so on. Now we will discuss methods of training the mind aimed at goals such as enhancing the mind's ability to determine its object and while the mind is engaged with it, making it remain single-pointedly focused on that object. The methods for training the mind can be subsumed into two categories, one gradually reducing the force of harmful mental states, mental afflictions such as attachment and so on, and gradually increasing and making it habitual, beneficial meditative states such as love, compassion, and wisdom. When we presented the mental factors, we identified afflictive mental states as consisting of both root and secondary mental factors, sorry, afflictions to generally eliminate these afflictions by means of their antidotes. It's not enough to merely understand the definition function of those mental afflictions. We also need to understand the causes and conditions that give rise to each of these afflictions, because this is of pivotal importance. Many classical Buddhist texts provide detailed explanations of the cause conditions, excuse me, of the mental afflictions, as well as the fall of the faults and defects of each. Drawing on these sources, we offer a brief explanation here. In general, Buddhist texts speak of numerous causes of afflictions, sanghas, levels of yogic deeds, bodhisattva bhumi, or actually uh, yogachara bhumi, mentions six principal causes. 
there are six types of causes from which mental affliction can arise. So this is, we have a whole analysis here of like how do mental afflictions arise? And so which aspect of, the, of that arising, that system for arising, are we gonna work with, with what, which practices? Six types of causes, basis, focal object, social distraction, social media, <laughs> um, explanation, habituation, and attention. Basis refers to the latent seed from which it arises. The focal object refers to an object that appears that is conducive to mental afflictions. Social distraction refers to going along with unwise beings. <laughs> Explanation refers to listening to unwise teachings. Habituation refers to arising through the force of prior familiarity and attention or refers to arising from inappropriate attention. So then he goes through these in detail. Um, which didn't really add a whole lot to it, I felt. And so I'm going to skip that. And then he gives an alternative example or system. Well, uh, some of them were not clear. Seed is clear. Uh, focal object is pretty clear. Social distraction is literally uh, uh, comporting with negative compatriots. And uh, Fourth is studying treatises on warfare or on sensual desire. <laughs> I think movies would be included in that category. Sixth attention uh, refers to inappropriate attention that elaborates more and more about the object of attachment, it's obsessing over them. Anyway, in the compendium of knowledge, which is by a sangha, however, isn't it? What did he quote it first? Uh, yeah. The compendium of knowledge, three principal causes of mental afflictions are mentioned. Mental afflictions arise owing to their latent seeds, not having been abandoned, owing to the appearance of things that are conducive to mental affliction, and owing to the activation of inappropriate attention. Not having abandoned latent seeds refers to not having abandoned the power of the underlying cause, the afflictive subtle proclivities. And uh, that is obviously the focus of attention for uprooting the glaciers. The appearance of things that are conducive to mental affliction refers to the power of the objects. The proximity of an object that is suitable to act as an objective condition for the arising of attachment and so on. So if you're trying to restrain from eating chocolate, you don't want to like have a lot of chocolate around. Three, the activation of inappropriate attention refers to the power of the preparatory activity, the presence of inappropriate attention as an immediately preceding condition. There's a similar presentation in the compendium uh, to this one found in the Treasury of Knowledge by Asanga's younger brother, Vasubandhu, and its auto-commentary and uh, says pretty much the same thing. The next paragraph I thought was the best paragraph of the whole book. The mental afflictions rest on ignorance, which is the root of all faults and defects as stated in Nagarjuna's Mulud Madhyamaka Karika. 
karma and afflictions arise from conceptualizations and these arise from the tendency to proliferate so um if you've ever read the profound treasury by chogyam chokpa do you remember what he presents as the cause for suffering when he goes through the four noble truths Buddha give as the cause for suffering? Either ignorance or desire. The Buddha gave Morgan? Clinging? Desire. Craving? Desire. Desire. The big D. Trishna. Desire. Thirst. And Trunk uh, Rimshe in the Profound Treasury following. The presentation by Jomun Cultural and Treasury of Knowledge gives karma and klesha as the cause of suffering. And that is a sort of uh, traditional presentation that's come down through the ages for the, the Four Noble Truths as the cause. Karma and klesha. So where is the ignorance in that? Where is the desire in that? Desires in the kleshas, obviously. But where is the ignorance? Okay, so the next senses contaminated actions which is clashes that bring forth a result in various types of suffering arise from mental affliction sorry so contaminated actions are not clashes those are the activities that clashes uh, result in mental afflictions arise from uh, mental afflictions i.e clashes arise from the conceptualizations of inappropriate attention conceptualizations of inappropriate attention so that's the activity of the mind that thinks about uh, um, things that give rise to clashes or that reinforce the clashes bring them about which is attention directed toward attractive and unattractive objects that exaggerates their modes of being as being either uh, sources of satisfaction or uh, unhappiness. These conceptualizations of inappropriate attention arise from long habituation to the proliferating tendency. So long habituation is karma. Karma is habit forming to the proliferating tendency of ignorance that is confused about the way things actually exist. Here the word ignorance does not refer to mere knowing, not knowing. I, I like this part too. Ignorance does not refer to not knowing. Sometimes uh, we, we think of ignorance as uh, there's knowing and there's not knowing. It's, it's, uh, so it's like, do you know what's on the other side of the road? No, so it's like, not knowing what's on the other side of the road so he says it does not refer to merely just not knowing what's on the other side of the road or lack of knowing it refers to the actual opposite of wisdom that knows what's on the other side of the road it's it's a uh, knowing what's not on the other side of the road if that makes any sense <laughs> It's like, for example, the way that the words unfriendly and untrue do not merely mean not friendly, right? 
unfriendly. Does unfriendly mean not friendly? No, because that could be any sort of neutral, but unfriendly is actually um, belligerent, anti-friendly. Anti yeah, it's exactly. Active. Yeah, I thought this was a, a very interesting uh, explanation, and not true. Uh, but rather, you know, not true doesn't mean it's neither true nor false. It means a lie or wrong, but rather means the opposite of friendly and truth. So um, he goes on a little bit about that. On the next page, skipping the quote, there are in general various types of ignorance. Ignorance that pertains to confusion about gross everyday facts, such as who's going to win the basketball championship. Has that happened yet, by the way? Is there any basketball fan here among us? Morgan? It's ongoing. They just played two games out of seven. And who's they? Uh, Miami and uh, Denver. Are, are Denver called Nuggets? Yes. <laughs> I thought so. I overheard somebody talking about the nuggets and I don't I didn't think they were talking about eating something. Thank you, sir. And the heat melted the nuggets the other day, surprisingly. Oh, I see. That's a good analogy. <laughs> so that was a surprise, huh? Okay, so two two games. So presumably they're one and one. Anyway. I digress. Uh, there are in general various types of ignorance. Ignorance that pertains to confusion about gross everyday facts, such as who's winning the, uh, whatever it's called, such as the way to get somewhere. Moral confusion about what to adopt or abandon. Uh, fashion confusion as to what to wear to work. And uh, uh, moral confusion about regard to karmic cause and effects or ignorance that pertains to distorted confusion about the way that things exist. The antidote to these types of confusion is simply the relevant knowledge that understands how things actually are. The reason ignorance itself is the root of all defects and faults is that mental afflictions such as attachment as well as all defects without exception, such as birth, which is a defect, by the way, <laughs> Aging, sickness, and death arise from ignorance. First, there arises the ignorance grasped at itself, which is confused about its objects, mode of existence. This ignorance obscures the ultimate nature of reality, then on this basis, attachment and aversion arise because of the conceptualizations of inappropriate attention that superimpose notions such as friend or enemy, what is called conceptualization of inappropriate attention superimposes onto its object additional features that do not accord with the way the things exist. For example, when attachment arises, the person who is the object of attachment is seen as wonderful in every aspect, in a way that exceeds how they actually are. When the aversion arises, that same when they when they break up with you, that same person suddenly has all sorts of faults that you never somehow noticed. <laughs> Is the object of aversion is seen as unpleasant in every aspect in a way that exceeds how they actually are. This is how the conceptualization of inappropriate attention exaggerate features of their objects. 
excuse me, this conceptualization and appropriate attention are induced by ignorance that is confused by reality on that basis. Attachment and aversion arise, and from attachment and aversion arise the various forms of suffering. Therefore, deluded ignorance itself is the root cause of all samsara, of all mental afflictions and suffering. Accordingly, just as when the roots of a tree are cut away, its branches and leaves wither, so when ignorance is extinguished, all mental afflictions cease. And he gives a number of quotes supporting that. Skipping all these quotes. Uh, let's see. Oh, after the two quotes, he says, here, delusion must be understood to mean ignorance grasping at itself. And then they give a, a characteristically wonderful way of describing what that self is. Now, when someone speaks sweetly to us, we think something such as, they're speaking so nicely of me. The sense of me that appears hovering deep in the mind is held to be an autonomous, an automaton that is the experiencer. Owing to that delusion, one creates biased categories of self and other, such that one is attached to self and averse to other. One is attached to the helpful, adverse to the harmful, and confused, confused about the neutral. In this way, all defects and faults of the three doors, door number one, two, and three, body, speech, mind, arise. A bunch of quotes that support that. After the quote is explained above a mind, so on page two, 372, focus on an attractive object, conceives it as attractive beyond its actual reality, and vice versa. Um, skipping the next paragraph, let's see. On 373, the paragraph that begins, Vasubandhu's treasury of knowledge explains how the other root afflictions as well as the secondary mental root afflictions arise from ignorance in the following way. From confusion about how things exist comes doubt that wonders whether the object exists in such a way or not. So this was sort of interesting um, process of tracing the very root and then its trunk, the trunk, like the root of the tree, in terms of like going through the various glaciers. First, the six root glaciers, how they, they arise from uh, ignorance, and then the secondary glaciers, the uh, subsidiary glaciers as the main branches and leaves. So first, from ignorance arises confusion about the way things exist, uh, which uh, gives rise to doubt that wonders whether the object exists in such a way or not. From erroneous learning and thinking induced by doubt comes wrong view, thinking that is not how the object exists. From this wrong view comes the view of the perishable collection. One of my all-time favorite phrases, the perishable collection. It's like you could buy somebody a gift of like a tie, or you could buy them some flowers, an arrangement of flowers for a perishable collection. Viewing the aggregates as the self or as belonging to the self, owing to the view of the perishable collection, uh, which we could just call PC for short. The view holding to an extreme then views the self as permanent or as uh, possibly annihilated. Mm, annihilated is not really the right word. Permanent or non-existent. 
um, owing to this view, owing to the view holding to either of these extremes, the view holding ethics and vows to be supreme, the belief that purification and liberation will be attained by means of them arises, and from the belief that purification and liberation will be attained by holding ethics and vows to be supreme, <coughs> the view holding vows to be supreme, Uh, arises. Wait a second. They just said that. Ethics and vows. It's supposed to be the view hold the view holding one's own view to be supreme arises. Right? From the view holding one's own view to be supreme comes attachment to one's own view. Mm, haughtiness and pride as well as hatred that despises other views. So he, he went through uh, confusion to doubt to wrong view. And then there's all these different types of wrong view. If you remember the root the six root glaciers, there's a wrong view has five types. You guys know that. I won't bore you with going through that. Uh, skipping the quote in general, there's no certainty these afflictions will arise in this specific sequence. However, since it's possible for the mental afflictions to arise in such an order upon misperceiving the object's way of existence, uh, that was a silly paragraph. Such sequences presented. Then they, they do the same for the uh, secondary afflictions, and they give uh, some schemes for how the secondary afflictions arise from the root and uh, from each other. So skipping that on page 374, we have how some mental factors are mutually incompatible. And this I mentioned at the beginning of class is like some mental factors just can't occur in the, uh, in the presence of other ones. And that's pretty obvious. You can't have avarice when you have attention, uh, attraction and so forth. So I'm gonna skip this whole section here attachment and anger. Um, there's counteracting and counteracted. Other characters in this play. And let's see, on page 377, and this is uh, for Cynthia. It's after the quote from engaging in the Bodhisattva deeds. It's one, two, three, the third paragraph after that. And it begins in brief, with respect to the manner in which mental states relate to each other as the counteractor and counteracted, both in the case of intelligence type and aspiration type mental states. So there, there was this distinction of uh, intelligence which had to do with understanding the nature of things and aspiration had to do with like uh, um, affection like compassion loving kindness right that was a way that they divided the uh, mental factors in brief with respect to the manner in which mental states relate to each other is counteracted and counteracted both in the case of intelligence and aspiration types there are the following two kinds one is like the example of heat and cold when you increase the heat the force of cold that is its opposite is reduced to a corresponding amount or by uh, similarly when you increase the thought of helping others the thought of harming others is stopped or reduced correspondingly 
It's also another kind where in the case of counteracting and it's counteracted, the elimination of the opposite is simultaneous. When a light is lit, the darkness vanishes immediately. This said the early Buddhist master on the whole maintained that since all manufacturers are ultimately rooted in the illusion of self-grasping that distortedly apprehends reality the view of the perishable collection that grasps that eye and mind cultivating specific antidotes such as loving kindness against hatred and rejoicing others happiness against jealousy will not be able to eliminate these afflictions permanently rather they only help to temporarily subdue them for something to be an antidote that functions to eliminate all mental effects afflictions it must definitely be the wisdom that realizes how things exist. At this point will be discussed in greater detail in the philosophy volumes of the present series, which are volumes three and four. Three stages of wisdom, learning, reflection, meditation. Um, let's see. Analyzing an object by means of correct reasoning will gradually produce three levels of wisdom generated through learning, critical reflection, meditative cultivation in that order. And this is not vastly different from what um, Professor Dunn presented in the introduction about this scheme. Learning about a topic through listening, someone else teaching is learning, the wisdom properly comprehending what has been heard is the wisdom wisdom from learning. This is generated through the causal capacity of someone else. Then carefully analyzing using scripture reason what one has understood from that learning is critical reflection. The insight of reason from ascertaining what this analysis reveals is called the wisdom arisen from critical reflection. This is generated through one's own causal capacity. Meditative cultivation refers to bringing the subject to mind again and again in accordance with what one has ascertained through learning and reflection. It is through such meditative cultivation by way of repeated familiarity that the wisdom arisen from meditative cultivation is generated. There are two types of such meditative cultivation. Analytical meditation involves rationally analyzing, bringing the ascertained meaning to mind again and again. And stabilizing meditation, which is without such discursive analysis, consists of keeping the mind single-pointedly focused on the chosen object. Buddhist texts explain these three types of wisdom as a crucial means for the mind to enhance its capacity to engage reality correctly. At the beginning, it's extremely important to generate the wisdom risen from learning, so then they go through more in more detail, and he quotes Arya Shura, uh, Jataka, Jataka Mala, Garland of Birth Stories, and uh, let's skip that, and the, subs and the subsequent paragraph after it, that uh, extrapolates on that quote on uh, page 380 we have <clears throat> let's see buddhist texts explain the definitions of learning reflection meditation the following way wisdom arisen from learning is a cognition differentiating phenomena that is based on the basis of another source such as another person or a scripture. For example, independence on hearing and reading a text, teaching that sound is impermanent, understanding that arrives at knowing a general statement, namely that sound is impermanent, is such a level of understanding. Wisdom risen from critical reflection of cognition that has reached ascertainment through rationally analyzing the meaning of what has been learned. Example is that sound is impermanent and uh, the wisdom from meditative cultivation is an awareness supported by special pliancy 
Sapa that Xinjiang that has arisen from repeatedly and undistractedly habituated and familiarizing the mind through either stabilizing analytical meditation as appropriate with the meaning experienced as a result of the prior two wisdoms learning and reflections. Examples of this both common uh, <clears throat> examples of this are both calm abiding and special insight. The Treasury of Knowledge Auto Commentary says it explained wisdom arisen from learning as ascertainment that arises from scriptures, trustworthy ones, and so on and so forth. That, uh, let's see, this text also describes next paragraph, causes of calm abiding, firm apprehension, and equanimity. These respectively mean the following. When special insight is stronger and calm abiding is weaker, the mind fluctuates like an oil lamp in the wind. Thus the meditative object is, object is not seen clearly. At that time, attention focuses on the cause or sign of calm abiding. Um, in the opposite situations, like being asleep, ultimate reality is not seen clearly. At that time, attention should be focused on firm, on uh, firm apprehensions. Sign, the sign of firm apprehension, i.e., shamatha, the method for uplifting the mind. When both calm abide and special insight operate equally of their own accord, attention should be brought to equanimity. Sign, that's like uh, going through the obstacles and antidotes when. Uh, you have no problems, you don't need to apply any solutions or antidotes further. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Uh, let's see. Uh, wisdom arisen from learning is not certain to bring about change in one's behavior. Um, however, if you can attain mastery of the relevant subject through critical reflection and meditation, especially gain experiential understanding through meditative cultivation, this can tra greatly transform one's habitual ways of thinking as well as one's behavior. Presumably the main focus of that being uh, uprooting the sense of self and then being able to behave without that constant self-reflective quality. I'm going to skip the remainder of the paragraph that talks about bondage and uh, skip to the next section. The importance of mindfulness meta awareness. Mindfulness is a mental factor that prevents one from forgetting its object and its aspects that are to be adopted or abandoned. Meta, meta awareness is a mental factor that analyzes one's conduct of body, speech, and mind from moment to moment and brings about an understanding of whether it is virtuous or non-virtuous. That description seems to me to contradict Professor Dunn's statement that meta awareness in this tradition is not about the features of the object. It seems to me that that was the description of a clear comprehension of the features of the situation. Anyway. Both of these mental factors are very important, not only in time of learning and reflecting about what one needs to know, but also in everyday life. By maintaining continual awareness of each point to be adopted or abandoned without confusing them, mindfulness helps retain them without forgetting <clears throat> all day long, every day, all the time, all of the points to be abandoned or cultivated. Thus, uh, having understood which points are to be adopted or abandoned, meta-awareness acts as a spy. 
It's funny that they use this analogy. And Sakyong used this analogy in the seminaries in, in uh, 99 and 2000. That uh, the spy of awareness um, at the time of engaging in any conduct and thinks, I will do such and such. The spy has this quality of watching and of watching in a way that doesn't become like obtrusive where you're not seen as watching. It's an interesting way of describing that quality of samprajanya or shashan of um, or awareness that like um, subtly is taking note of whether we're being mindful or not. Whether we have specifically the way this was described and, and uh, which I felt was a very good description specifically of whether we're experiencing arousal uh, high arousal or low arousal excitation or dullness so that uh, spy of meta-awareness is tracking that scale <clears throat> um, when my mindfulness meta-awareness have both been developed and when behave skillfully without error doing what a good boy or girl is supposed to do to generate those two states one must always practice the third factor, heedfulness, uh, pakya, carefulness, conscientiousness, which protects the mind from afflictive mental factors and promotes virtue. To give rise to heedfulness, one must consider the benefits of practicing it and the faults of not doing so. How does this work? If one gives rise to heedfulness, then mindfulness and meta-awareness will be generated. In dependence on that, one will adopt good qualities and abandon faults without error. So there's the third quality of shamati, heedfulness. Interestingly presented after the other two qualities, but then explained as like being a predecessor of the two qualities. And when in the Buddha, in the Four Foundations of the Mindfulness Sutra, and he presents this refrain at each part of the sutra, and there's like 40 different objects to contemplate in that sutra. He says, here sits a monk, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful. And he presents the, the factors in that order, interestingly. Now, and the context- is Ardent? Ardent is heedful? Is heedful, is, uh, yeah, it, it's the third factor in that, in that situation. And it seems to transform. It's not the same word, I, I don't think, ardent. Uh, it's cer certainly a different meaning in English, which doesn't always mean it's a different word in Sanskrit or Pali, but I think it actually changes, the term changes between the Pali and the, and the uh, later Indian Buddhist tradition from uh, ardency, which is atapta or something like that, to heedfulness, which I can't remember the Sanskrit for. If anybody finds it, let me know. It's not in the glossary for some strange reason. They should be more heedful. In the context of the three wisdoms, one can explain the practice of meta mindfulness and meta-awareness as follows. Whatever the mind is engaged in, one needs a method both to prevent it from wandering away from the main object of focus and to recognize whether it is or not. The first is mindfulness, second is meta-awareness. And uh, he repeats that over and over again for the remainder of the paragraph, so I'll skip that. 
and further supports it with the next paragraph and the quote from the Great Plays Sutra. Sounds like a fun sutra. Uh, this, uh, let's see. After that, this indicates the following. One applies mindfulness focused on the proper object of one's activity while analyzing it accurately with wisdom, differentiating good and bad, and using the spy of meta-awareness that recognizes within mind has wandered away from that meaningful activity to be done than evil minds, mental afflictions such as laziness, distraction, and watching TV cannot do any harm. Conversely, if we do not apply mindfulness, meta-awareness, and heedfulness, then, although we may appear to know what many points at the time of learning reflection, when we enter into actual practice, what was studied earlier does not become an object of our mindfulness and or recollection, which is like pouring water into a pot that has a leak. Going back to that famous analogy of the three types or four types of students, the leaky pot, the uh, dirty pot, the full pot, or the nice clean pot, uh, Apramada, thank you. Eric, cool. Apramada is heedfulness, thank you very much. And Pakya in Tibetan, so that's in the chat, thank you. Apramada. Uh, let's see, skipping the quote of mindfulness and meta-awareness to generate the mind will be disturbed by mental afflictions. Skipping the remainder of that. Uh, skipping the quote. And then in brief, without mindfulness, meta-awareness, previously present good qualities deteriorate. New ones do not arise. And after the quote by Nagarjuna, having to point out the benefits of these two mental factors and the faults of not having them, now we discuss why a general person who's a beginner must guard their mind in the following way. And I'm gonna skip this not very interesting presentation of that. And uh, uh, the example of somebody dropping their sword <laughs> in a fight, immediately pick it up again. And let's see, the remainder of this was not that helpful because it basically just repeats the similar thing all and over again. Except we have the famous analysis, analogy at the end of this section, which is on page 385 for us in the last paragraph before view meditation conduct for Cynthia, which is, suppose a person has been ordered by a cruel king to walk along a path, the walk of shame, carrying a jar filled with mustard oil while accompanied by a very large man wielding a sword who's been told if he spills even one drop of oil, you must kill him instantly. Such a person will very try very hard to be uh, not drop any oil. And uh, so when a person engages in the actions, body, speech, and mind, he or she must be vigilant like that, maintaining mindfulness, meta-awareness with regard to what is suitable and suitable. Interestingly, using the term vigilant to sort of sum up the two or three of them, what can infer, uh, let's see, as for the causes and definitions and functions and classifications of mindfulness, meta-awareness, we went through those already in the mental factors section. Cynthia. So you said this before too, but I just, even in this last sort of wrap-up section, it seems very funny that that they keep coming back to mindfulness and meta-awareness and skipping heedfulness. And yet if heedfulness is the thing that 
through its presence gives rise to those other two, you would think they would harp more on that, wouldn't they? I know it is odd. I, I agree with you. I mean, I think their use of the term vigilant is another way of translating the opera mata, but But yeah. it's funny, they just seem to drop that one. They, they mention it as being the source of the other two in a way, and then, and then they drop it. And it seems very odd. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so what is it that, so so let's pause for a second. What, from our own understanding, what is it that cultivates heat, that heedfulness? Devotion. Devotion is, is big. Yeah, that's a good one. That's great. Devotion to uh, enlightenment, devotion to... Uh, the um, the sort of uh, instruments that help us achieve enlightenment, the teachings and the teachers that teach those teachings, that's definitely one that brings about the heedfulness. What else brings about that? I suppose faith also. Faith in what? Faith that enlightenment exists? Or is it faith in the teaching? It's like that, that yeah, that... Um... That they're, you know, like they talk about the three types of faith and that sort of thing. That that just that whole, um, I mean, aside from devotion, obviously is important. But in terms of one's own conviction, I guess um, that yeah. What else? Practice are useful. Yeah, faith, devotion. Those are like positives. Is there a negative inspiration? Oh, you're, you're thinking like fear of or uh, uh, or suffering, I suppose. Karma. Karma, right? You know, when, when we have texts like uh, Words of My Perfect Teacher and Jewel Ornament, and they go through karma and its results like endlessly and go through all the different hells and things like that. Well, that's, I mean, that's, it's, is that karma or is that just plain old fear? <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely fear. I think it's like fear of the uh, cause, the effects of, of negative karma. Right. Okay. And I, yeah. and I think those are like ways of engendering and uh, the intensity of uh, heedfulness. So the sort of hair on fire quality. Yeah. Snake in well, the water. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the carefulness. You know, being like really careful about your activity because the results of negative activity are multiplied and they, you will end up in the hot hell or the cold hell or whatever, the smashing hell. Or, I don't know. So, but all of those things faith, devotion, fear, so forth. Uh, let's see. The, the remainder of the section, I think, is, is actually pretty quick. There's two topics. One is view meditation and conduct. And um, the authors basically go through this idea of uh, stabilizing meditation and analytical meditation, which the uh, introduction went through, I think, in a very adequate way. They just repeat the same thing. Uh, so on, on page 386, for those of us who have the physical books, it's the second full paragraph concerning view meditation action. And for Cynthia, it's the third full paragraph in this section called view meditation conduct. 
and it starts with concerning via meditation conduct in general meditation involves familiarizing oneself again and again with a chosen object that is the focus of one's meditation skipping some the next sentence as we saw above there's two types analytical which is to meditate by analyzing with the wisdom of fine investigation and stabilizing, which is to place the mind single-pointedly on the object without analyzing. In general, calm abiding is the type of stabilizing. A special insight is the type of analytical. Here they present them as uh, inclusive, but the term in general is not uh, fully pervasive, right? However, not all single-pointed meditation is calm abiding, and not all analytical meditation is insight. They didn't go the other way. They didn't say not all uh, calm abiding is single-pointed and not all insight is analytical. As explained extensively below, stabilizing meditation is to meditate while placed in the mind single-pointedly without distraction on a single base or object. Analytical meditation is to meditate while contemplating using many scriptural citations <laughs> that's what you guys do right when you do vipassana you do you do many scriptural citations reasons examples and so on concerning the deeper meaning of the object of meditation so in sangha's levels of yogic deeds it says i'm just kidding i'm par parodying the use of scriptural citations in meditation However, there's many other forms of meditation. Impermanence and emptiness, one meditates in relation to the object that's cognized. One may also meditate by generating particular subjective states, such as loving kindness and compassion. Others involve characteristics or aspects that resemble states more advanced than one's own, as one meditated on higher qualities that one has not yet attained. That's a good one. Alternatively, one can speak of meditating on the feature of an object as one when one, one meditates in all conditioned things as impermanent, or in a subjective feature as when one cultivates compassion by generating one's mind into the state of compassion. That's interesting. And then he goes to the objects of meditation and there's two schemes for these one is the four objects which is this very complicated scheme that has like a zillion different subdivisions four types of objects pervasive objects that purify behavior objects of mastery and objects that purify mental states and we've been through this in some other courses and uh, I, I'll, I'll send around an article i just found by alexander burson that goes through them afterwards and it's as he they don't go through it they say as through for detailed explanation of these four you got to look in the great text themselves <laughs> so i guess this is not a great text um and then it also goes through these seven types of temperaments attachment aversion delusion pride distortion and equally balanced and less afflicted and then they, he goes through these types of temperament i don't know if anybody made it to this section of the reading but I found this very interesting and uh, sort of revealing. You can pick out your style of, uh, of uh, Klesha, right? Did, did anyone else figure out your style of Klesha? <laughs> it was pretty cool, like in the terms of like how you conduct yourself and what did the, the uh, features of such a, what are the signs of a person who attachment predominates for such a person, even if a smaller inferior thing triggering attachment produces 
a huge and dense entanglement of attachment to rise. What, what need is there to mention those of those things that are mediocre or good? Anyway, so I went through those seven different temperaments and uh, at the very end lists what the people of different temperaments should meditate on. So very quickly at the bottom of 390 in our uh, hard copy book and Cynthia's the last paragraph of the, of the section. Your chapter and brief divisions of persons by temperament are posited mainly on the basic mental inclination and general temperament. Thus, individuals are differentiated in terms of their everyday temperament into seven different types. Um, oh, this was just a summary of the same. I thought something else. Sorry. So he just repeats the same list. I thought they were going to give the meditation subject for each of the different types. So anyway, that's it for tonight. And next week, we dive into uh, Calm Abiding Special Insight. Oh, no, just Calm Abiding next week. And then uh, Special Insight the following. So 30 pages on Shamatha and then 8 pages on Insight. But they have 13 on uh, Mindfulness meditation which they consider an application of my of insight meditation in this system interestingly comments questions suggestions announcements jokes thoughts aspirations poems prayers appeals speeches anything anything <laughs> I'm just curious that you've mentioned a couple times in terms of the assessment of, of the four foundations of mindfulness as being part of Vipassana in the context of this reading. How would you, in, in terms of the way they're describing it, how would you say that it's, it, it would, what would you be your view of how it was characterized in our traditions? Yeah, that's a great question. I should have just anticipated that and said, uh, the way Trungpa Rinpoche presents it, it's clearly shamatha. And he says that in uh, the 1973 uh, uh, seminary transcripts. He goes through his very odd terminology for them. And in the Q&A, somebody says, are you presenting a different scheme than the traditional four objects? And he says, no, this is the same scheme. And there's a little jibe at the uh, some uh, German-Jewish translators by Rimshe as being like very psychologically uh, oriented and very rigid in their way of translating those terms. And he says that he's translating them more practice in terms of practice, but it's the same terms. And then somebody asks, you know, is it like, uh, um, I think the person asked, like, what path is it? And is it Hinayana or Mahayana? But then, uh, but also, is this Shamatha or Vipassana? And Rimshe immediately says, this is Shamatha. And then the person says, asks something else. Um, and then Rimshe says, well, it, it could also, it's Shamatha, but it could also extend to Vipassana. But it's like, the, the, the wording is sort of like, you can tell that it, it's basically his way of presenting the progression of shamatha. And if you study it carefully, in my humble opinion, he's presenting the, uh, the same scheme that we referred to before of with object and without object of shamatha. So that when you get to 
shamatha the nature of mind it's it uh he goes through things like transcendent watcher and uh so uh and then uh the uh mindfulness of uh the fourth one um is uh just basically uh, being there uh, sort of like the way dun described uh the awareness without object sort of thing but thank you that, that was good thank you to, uh, discuss that uh, certainly open to other interpretations of, of his presentation uh, if other people have that we can revisit it over and over again it's fascinating and uh important anyway let's conclude for now uh, by this merit may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be misdispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. I almost said, uh, may, may all, something of all beings be misspelled, <laughs> which would make sense because I am really bad at spelling. So, anyway, thank you. Nice to see you all. And have those of you going to retreat, have a great time. And uh, I'll see the rest of you hopefully next week. Take Thanks, care. Eric. Thank you.